All right. Good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing today? I am James. I am one of the pastors here at Riverview. How many of you have had a chance to uh, spend some time in the mountains? Anybody ever been in the mountains? Yeah. Um, About a year after I got out of college, I uh, took a group of high school kids uh, on a guided backpacking trip in the Rocky Mountains in southern Colorado. Uh, It was the first time I had been uh, to Colorado. This is one of those no-trace camping like a week long. Uh, We carried a week's worth of uh, uh, our food and clothes and in our backpacks, all of our supplies. We set up a camp every night, prepared our own meals. Very different from anything that I had ever done. Uh, We hiked for three days. It was eight, 10, 12 miles a day of hiking. And on the fourth day, we got up at two o'clock in the morning and we hiked to the top of a 14,000 foot peak. Uh, And we watched the sunrise together. I had never seen anything like that. It was just absolutely stunning, uh, breathtaking. As the the day came, um, we could see for miles in every direction. Our guides uh, were able to show us uh, where we had already been. We started out right down there. We moved over here and we traveled up here. And this is where you are now. And this is where we're headed. Um, It was really, really cool. Um, There's something special about kind of being on the mountain time, and it provides perspective literally. You can kind of see everything around you, but also beyond your physical surroundings. It just feels like a natural place for reflection. You can kind of press pause, evaluate your life. If you're a a, a person of faith, you can think about your relationship with God. You can look back at where you've been kind of assess where you are, look forward to where you're heading. And as you just heard from Roger, our story today in Mark 9 is the story of one of these mountaintop experiences. Mark 9 verse 2 says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves to be alone. Now, as you read through the Bible, uh, it's not uncommon to find people encountering God at the top of mountains. A lot of times, there will also be uh, some kind of natural or supernatural phenomenon that'll happen. It'll be thunder or fire or or clouds or bright light or darkness, something like that, that that, that will accompany this visit to the mountaintop and generally signifies kind of the unique presence of God. Kind of God showing up, right, on the mountaintop. Jesus being up on this mountain with his disciples brings to mind other times in the biblical narrative where God's people met, or God himself, on the mountain. As you heard in the reading, there's two men in this story, Moses and Elijah, who make kind of a special guest appearance on the mountain with Jesus, Both of these men had previously had multiple mountaintop experiences. You may remember, here's Mount Sinai down here. Does anybody know what happened on Mount Sinai? Yes, the giving of the commandments, the tablets, right? You might be familiar with that story. The Jewish people were enslaved down in Egypt until God's command to Moses, right? He, he stared down the Pharaoh and then Moses led the people out into the, the wilderness, which is a very mountainous kind of desert area there. There was the parting of the Red Sea and God providing the food, the manna from heaven, And they end up encamped in tents at the foot of Mount Sinai. 
Sinai. And here's what it says. This is Exodus uh, 24 in verse 12. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay there so that I may give you the stone tablets with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. Verse 15, When Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered it, The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he, this is God, called to Moses from the cloud. The appearance of the Lord's glory to the Israelites was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain and he remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, which makes my little six-day backpacking trip feel a little bit like, uh, like junior high, right? And so um, Moses, as he receives the, the commandments, the tablets from God on Mount Sinai, the appearance of God's glory is so bright that the uh, uh, Israelites can see it from the bottom of the mountain. It's just this just, uh, just brilliant uh, light. In fact, Moses, when he came down from the mountain, he didn't realize this, but his face was glowing from having been with God. The Israelites were like afraid to go near him. And so eventually, if you remember the story, Moses, remember he began wearing this veil over his face because he didn't want the people to be afraid of him. This is kind of a pattern right, that we see in the Bible where there's a significant event, right, this, in this case, the, the, the giving of the law, and it's marked by this mountaintop encounter with God, and then there's fire or clouds or some other supernatural thing, right, at the end of Moses's life, he has another mountaintop experience, this time he's on Mount Nebo, and I think that you can see right here, Mount Nebo is just to the east of the Jordan River, just outside of the Promised Land. Jericho's right here uh, across the Jordan River there. You can read about this encounter in Deuteronomy 34. From Mount Nebo, God shows Moses the Promised Land. Moses is 120 years old, and his whole life has been dedicated to getting to the Promised Land. Now he can see it. He's standing on, on Mount Nebo. But he tells him, you will never set foot in the land. Now, I've not been to Mount Nebo, but uh, Pastor Mark, um, one of my co-pastors, he had the chance uh, to go there to climb to the top a few years ago. And he said, you can see Jerusalem from the top of Mount Nebo, um, which he said was pretty awesome, the view that Moses would have had there. In the Jewish Midrash, which is like sort of their, their lore, their wisdom literature, the story about Moses goes that he repeatedly asked God, Um, if he could uh, go into the promised land. And he even asked, could you turn me into like an insect or a bird so that I can just like be in the promised land and see it? He just longed to be there. But God instead spoke to Moses and said, it's time for you to come and be with me. And and Moses, it says in the literature, was rushed into ecstasy and went to be with God. Now, fast forward about 500 years and we find another biblical hero, the prophet Elijah, He's at the top of a mountain, Mount Carmel, which is located up here just to the west of the Sea of Galilee. 
uh, if you know the story of Elijah, he is staring down the prophets of the pagan god Baal on the top of Mount Carmel. There's this almost like this rap battle happening um, between uh, Elijah and there was 450 prophets of Baal. Now that one I have climbed a couple of times. Um, Here's the view that we had um, from the top of Mount Carmel when I was up there, just this was this past May, just a stunning, stunning climb, a beautiful area there. By the way, we're now up to 34 people on our Israel trip in May, the one we're doing with Riverview. And God willing, we will climb Mount Carmel together. All of you, I see some of you over here, you'll better get in shape. All right, 1 Kings chapter 18. Um, I'm kind of serious about that. Um, it's, a, it's a hard climb. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 20. So Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? Now that question, hang on to that for a second, because that's really the fundamental question of our study here today. How long will you waver between two opinions? And he clarifies, he says, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But don't be sitting on this fence, right? But the people didn't answer him word. They're like, oh, shoot, we've been sitting on the fence. Dang it. Then Elijah said to the people, I am the only remaining prophet of the Lord. Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let two bulls be given to us. They are to choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. I will prepare the other bull and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. Then you call up on the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. The God who answers with fire, he is God All the people answered, that's fine. Okay, and so they do it. The prophets of Baal prepare their bull and they put it on the altar and they began to like cry out to Baal, right? Please, please bring fire on this altar, right? And and nothing happens. They cry out even louder. If you read the passage, they're even like cutting themselves with swords and knives, like shedding their own blood, begging uh, Baal to answer with fire. Meanwhile, uh, Elijah is just like taunting the prophets of Baal. He's just trash talking. He's like, maybe your God wandered off or maybe he like fell asleep. Maybe he's in the bathroom. I don't know. Where, where do you think he is? I don't see any fire, right? Um, it, this is possibly why, um, if you notice when you read Mark and the other gospels, they keep wondering if Jesus is Elijah because both of them are such legendary trash talkers. Um, <laughs> Elijah had such an incredible passion for the Lord. The name Elijah means the Lord is God. Like his literal name is just the passion that he had. And again, I think he's similar to Jesus in that regard. And so Baal doesn't show up, nothing happens. And so then it's Elijah's turn. He prepares his bull. He even has them pour multiple pitchers of water over the top of this bull offering until the whole is just saturated with water and the trench is filled with water underneath. And then Elijah calls upon the Lord. First Kings 18, 28. Is that right? And first Kings 38, yeah. Then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering. Now I would love to see the YouTube video of that right there. Then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering. The wood, the stones, 
and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They're literally chanting, Elijah, Elijah. They're chanting his name, right? Now again, we see God meeting his servant on the mountain. There's fire and God is glorified. Elijah, by the way, if you know the story, never dies. It's a crazy story. In 2 Kings chapter 2, it describes this chariot that comes and takes Elijah away in this whirlwind. And so for the Jewish people, Elijah is sort of this this hero in their uh, narrative. He's fondly remembered uh, at, at all their feasts and different things like that, including the belief that one day his return would be one of the signs that the Messiah has arrived. In fact, if you fast forward to the very last verse of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah are forever linked. In Malachi chapter four, it says, remember, this is the prophet uh, Malachi speaking for God. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statues and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And then at the end of Malachi, there's radio silence from God. There's 400 years between the end of Malachi and the next verse in the Bible, which is Matthew's account of the genealogy of Jesus. So these are God's final instructions to the Jewish people As you're awaiting the coming Messiah, A, remember the law I gave to Moses on Sinai, and B, look for Elijah. And so now let's jump back into our passage here today, forward to Mark chapter 9. Last week, uh, if you remember, at the end of chapter 8, Pastor Noel shared the powerful words that Jesus spoke to his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is at the foot of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is one of the tallest mountains in Israel, like 9,000 feet. And, And the words that Jesus shared with the disciples went something like this. If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me, right? What good is it for a man to gain the world if he loses his soul? What would you trade for your soul? Very, very powerful. And then this is what happens next. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves to be alone. Jesus was transfigured in front of them. And his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us the name of this mountain that they went up onto where the transfiguration took place. Most of church history uh, leans towards Mount Tabor, which is located here. Uh, just south of Mount Carmel, right around the Sea of Galilee. It's a pretty good guess. It's close to where um, the, the disciples were up here and they would have come down here. And then after this story, they went back to the Sea of Galilee. There's actually several churches on the top of Mount Tabor kind of commemorated. They're called like the Ch- Church of Transfiguration. It's a, it's a pretty good guess. Very possible that that's where it was, um, where they were located there. Now, what does it mean that Jesus was transfigured? 
His clothes are like suddenly bedazzled, not like the hot glue gun kind, right? Like there's something supernatural happening uh, here. I don't, I don't do a lot of bedazzling myself, but I've heard, I've heard of this as a thing. The Greek word is, is metamorphu, is what is translated as transfigured. And that may sound familiar. That's where we get our word metamorphosis. Meta is with, morphu is to fashion or shape. The actual little translation of this word is transformed or shaped or reshaped after being with. And so this transformation, this transfiguration of Jesus in his clothing is the sign that God the Father is uniquely present. God, Jesus has been with his Father, and so his presence changes. He's transfigured, right, um, in, a, in a different way, as happened with uh, some of these other mountaintop experiences. Verse 4, Elijah appeared to them with Moses. And so just so that you know, Moses died in like 1200 BC. This is like over a thousand years ago. Elijah, 800-ish BC. Um, So Elijah appeared to them with Moses is a stunning occurrence there. And they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Now nothing gets by Peter, right? He's like, this is awesome. I love this. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, why did he say that? Well, the text says, because he did not know what to say. Like, he couldn't think of anything else to say. He's like, I'll suggest something about shelters. Um, it's possible that this, was, uh, uh, um, this transfiguration occurred during the Feast of Shelters, um, that would be something to go back and read about. Uh, that's a, maybe a different sermon. And that, you know, uh, Peter was wanting to, to just include them, what was happening around them. We don't know, but it says he did not know what to say since they were terrified. And so he suggests these shelters. A cloud appeared overshadowing them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Okay, so I have a lot of questions about this, all right? Um, Moses, like I said, had died like roughly 1250 BC. Elijah, we know the actual date. That was 852 BC when he was taken up to heaven. And now both of them appear talking to Jesus. So I have questions like, what were they doing the day before? Like, where, like literally, where were they? Were they like in storage or like, is there like a, I don't know. I don't know the answer to these questions. Were they frozen? Did they know in advance they were going to be making this day trip back to earth? And were they like mad about it? I mean, because they had been in heaven with God and their lives on earth, both of them were like super hard. And if they were like, do I have to go back? I don't really want to go back. Maybe they didn't. Did they know each other? Beforehand, this is the first time Moses and Elijah had met. I got a lot of questions about this. Um, All above my pay grade, by the way. I don't know if these guys were Facebook friends. I don't know. Did the disciples, how did they know who Moses and Elijah, how did they know? Were they wearing name tags? There's a lot of left out of the story. If it was Mount Tabor, one of the cool things about this story is you think about Moses. He lived his whole life 
with the goal of leading people into the promised land, but was never able to enter it himself. And now he's standing on the top of a mountain, right in the middle of it, with the Messiah. I just wonder if he just stood there and wept. Think about what this means. As the prophet Malachi said, when you're awaiting the coming Messiah, remember the law of Moses, look for Elijah. Now they both appear. And the voice of God himself gives testimony. This is like as conclusive as it gets. Jesus is the long-awaited savior of the world. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the fulfillment of the prophets. This is God's beloved son. Listen to him. And then, just like that, Moses and Elijah are gone. And again, I got more questions. Like, where did they go? Like, did they have to return their bodies? Um, Did Peter and James and John look them up when they got to heaven? Did they have like a little mountaintop reunion? There's lots of questions I have about this. But the story continues this way. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And this is interesting. It says they kept this word to themselves. They're like the only ones that were able to keep the Jesus secret, right? Questioning what rising from the dead meant. They're like, we're not going to tell anyone. What is he talking about? I don't get, what is he talking about? Like, I don't get it. When they asked, then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? I think we have heard of this Elijah fella. Elijah does come first and restores all things, Jesus replied. And then he had a question for them. Why then is it written that the son of man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, says Jesus, that Elijah has come and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. And that's, you know, that's probably uh, Jesus alluding to John the Baptist. Most scholars think John the Baptist was like this kind of coming of Elijah. And so they had seen the literal Elijah and this idea that uh, Elijah has come. They did what they pleased him. John the Baptist was killed. He was the forerunner to Jesus. That's probably what he's referring to there. Now, I imagine that Peter, James, and John never forgot what they saw that day on Mount Tabor. Never. It seems like they waited until the resurrection to tell others about it. But after Jesus did rise from the dead, I bet they told everybody they possibly could. I always wondered if like the disciples like name dropped, like they're in Bible study and they're reading from Genesis or Numbers and they're like, which Moses wrote those books. And they're like, you know, I met Moses one time. I should have asked him about that, you know. John and Peter certainly talked about it. If you read in John chapter one, uh, gospel, uh, John's gospel account, he wrote that he beheld the glory of Jesus. In first Peter, sorry, second Peter, um, verse, uh, chapter one, verse 16, Peter said, for we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter like remembered this. This is like part of his 
his, uh, his faith story. The power and coming of Jesus Christ, it's not some contrived myth, right? Peter and the other disciples, they saw the majesty of Jesus with their own eyes. They heard the voice of God himself with their own ears. They touched the wounds in Jesus's hands, the resurrected Jesus with their own hands. Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He's the better Moses, the better Elijah. Elijah, John the Baptist says, I'm not even fit to to kneel down and tie, untie one of his sandals. He is the beloved son of God. Do you know him? Do you listen to him as God spoke from the heavens? This is my son. Listen to him. Are you prepared to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow him? I tell you, Peter, James, and John sure were. Um, they, if you read the rest of Mark 9, I would describe what they had as like an unrestrained zeal. They came down from that mountain. They had a fire. Um, they have an argument with the scribes. They're trying to cast out demons. Um, Jesus tells them again that he's going to rise from the dead and they completely don't understand what's going on there. And then they have an argument with each other about which one of them is the greatest. <laughs> Jesus rebukes them, right? So they have this, they are just passionate without a whole lot of direction quite yet. But if you read the rest of their story, um, they live their lives going forward with such a zeal for communicating the gospel message to the world. It's reassuring knowing that even the earliest disciples who were that close to Jesus, they didn't always understand. They didn't always get everything right. And at the same time, they had a fire for Jesus that we would do well to emulate. And that kind of passion comes from being with Jesus. I'm reminded of Acts 4. Peter and John were arrested for preaching about Jesus. And it says the Jewish leaders, when they observed their boldness, that's in the Hebrew, that's chutzpah. That's that passion, that fire, that flame. It says they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They had that Moses glow, right? They were transformed, Now that word metamorpho appears two other times in the New Testament besides those gospel accounts of the transfiguration of Jesus. These are both in Paul's letters. Both refer to the change that happens in a believer, uh, a follower of Jesus after having been with Jesus. The first one is in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter three. In verse 12, it says, since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of what was being set aside. He didn't want people staring at him, basically, to put this veil on. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains, metaphorically, right? It's not lifted because it's set aside only in Christ. Still today, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their hearts, right? But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being metamorpho, transformed, 
changed, shaped after having been with Jesus into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is spirit. The same presence of God who manifested in fire and Mount Sinai and on Mount Carmel, that fire is present inside of everyone who knows Jesus, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. When a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed and there is freedom. And he says, we act with great boldness, with great chutzpah, passion, because we have such a hope. We live with this fire for Jesus as the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us changes us, right? That's what metamorpho is. The Christian-y word for this process is called sanctification. It's the, the, the process of growing in holiness over time. And it doesn't happen automatically. We don't stumble into holiness. Like after a couple months, we're like, oh my gosh, look at what's happened here. Through obedience, remember, God said, this is my son, listen to him. God invites us to participate in the process of him changing us. He's the one who does all the heavy lifting. But we're active in that process, right? Paul's second use of metamorpho is, is sort of the practical version of that. This is Romans chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be metamorpho, transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And so Paul gives us some, some really practical steps there of how we participate in the process of God changing us. First, we remember God's mercies. Don't ever forget the sacrifice Jesus made on your behalf. Then he says, we live sacrificially, right? We talked about that last week. We deny ourselves as Jesus said and did. Then he says, don't conform to this age. That goes back to Elijah, right? Don't hesitate between two opinions. If you're gonna serve the Lord, serve the Lord. The Lord is God, period. And then we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, metamorpho. That happens by the power of God's spirit and through the wisdom of God's word. Now, one final PS, okay? Elijah had a second and much different mountaintop encounter with God. After boldly and fiercely confronting a wicked king and these prophets of Baal that were false prophets, Elijah really started to struggle with doubt, with loneliness, with exhaustion, with depression. Maybe you've been there. This is kind of like the Elijah we can relate to, right? Sorry, this thing's bothering me. Maybe you've experienced some of those same things. Maybe you're there right now. I mean, Elijah had as much passion for, for God as anybody in the Bible. God uses his faith to bring glory to himself in huge ways, and now he's broken. He needs to reconnect with the Lord, and so he walks 40 days and 40 nights all the way from Mount Carmel down to Mount Sinai, the same spot Moses had spent 40 days 
and 40 nights when he received the law. And Elijah cried out to God. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, of, to the, for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned their covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they are looking for me to take my life. He's like, God, I need you. Where are you? And God said, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and shattering the cliffs before the Lord. But the Lord was not in that wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. And when Elijah heard that voice, he wrapped his face in the mantle, in his mantle, and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And then God spoke to him in that little whisper. And here's why I love that. While there's no doubt that sometimes we seek God earnestly and we see him clearly during mountaintop experiences or in the midst of storms that we faced, we must learn to cultivate the practice of clearing space to hear God's voice in the mundane moments of our everyday lives. And so I love that Elijah goes to Sinai to reorient himself with God because that's where God originally gave us his word. And it's through his word that we can hear God's voice whenever we want to today. Anytime we want God to speak to us, he's already done so. His spirit lives inside of us to help us understand his word. In Hebrews, it says that God's word is living and active, that it pierces the soul, that it, it sort of searches our spirit, right? And remember that very same spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that showed up in the form of fire to Moses and Elijah, that spirit lives inside. If you are a follower of Jesus, the veil is gone and we are now of the spirit. We walk by the spirit. And so grab a few friends or a roommate or your spouse or get a little time to yourself each day and open up the, the voice of God, the word of God and hear it. Remember what God said? Listen to him. Talk about it. Reflect upon it. Conform your life to it. Hear God's voice. We have prepared a time of Lord's Supper for the Riv family to participate uh, together here. Remember, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as a way for us to intentionally do the things we just talked about, to remember his mercies, that he broke his body and shed his blood for us. That's the bread, that's the wine, right? And then to commit ourselves together to living sacrificially for him in order to bring him glory. So let me pray, and then we will move forward with more time of worship and then Lord's Supper together. Lord, we are grateful to you for the sacrifice that you have made on our behalf, for your mercy, and for the example of, of living with a fire, living with a passion that you yourselves gave us. Just when, wherever you went, whatever you did on this earth, people were just drawn to you. Uh, we just thank you that you've given us your spirit. 
And we just pray that you would help us to live with that kind of zeal, that kind of passion for you today, that just our faces would look different um, as a result of having been with you uh, so that you would be brought glory, Lord. We want that. Um, Help us to not waver between two opinions, but to really believe and live as though you are the Lord because you are. And we thank you that Jesus is our example in all this. Amen.